This, this, this show is brought to you by Safety FM. Welcome listeners to episode 8 of the Practice of Learning Teams. In this episode, the three authors of the book, The Practice of Learning Teams, Brent Sutton, Glynis McCarthy and Brent Robinson, will conduct a mini learning team based on your submissions in the learning journal. We will then discuss and reflect on some of the community challenges to embed learning teams and explore the what, the how and the why. This episode was inspired from a conversation with Dr. Todd Conklin and Jeffrey Leith about the acronym STICKY, a new acronym called STRM, which means Stuff That Really Matters. So if we have stickies, if we have things that can kill us or cause a life-changing event, then it makes sense that we have things that mitigate or control those stickies. And for today's sessions, we're going to call those STRM, Stuff That Really Matters. And I'm being joined today by my fellow authors, Glynis McCarthy and Brent Robinson. So let's start with you, Brent, Stuff That Really Matters. Well, this is, um, this is my sort of touch point. I get quite bent out of shape sometimes with... Uh, some of the businesses I see and they, we have all these things that are our safe system of work or all about safety. And uh, sometimes I, you have to ask, and I, I really like this word again, I, this is a great way of asking people a really simple question, stuff that really matters. Are we really looking at that or are we just building stuff on top of what we're doing right now and making it more complex and, and adding waste to our safety system? And, you know, this is one of those things that we've all seen across all industries where um, we don't focus on the stuff that really matters anymore. We focus on built-on processes that we keep on adding, thinking we're making people safe, but not necessarily making people safe. I think um, Dave Proven talks about it. He calls it um, safety clutter which is, you know, one way of talking about it. I just like to call it waste. If it's not adding value, then we need to go and have a look at it and see what we can do to improve it and so we can really get to the stuff that really matters at the end of the day and keeping keeping people safe. And maybe we'll identify that as stuff that doesn't matter. Yeah, <laughs> stuff that really doesn't matter. Yeah. You know, and, these you know things... we, can, we can go through the conga line of those things. Absolutely. But, but these things we're trying to do to reduce risk to the worker, they really are binary. They either do matter or they don't matter. Yeah. And, and I know we have this constant conversation that's being had at the moment, which is, uh, you know, w- when we have these uh, hazards that can cause uh, life-changing events, it's really important that we understand what our controls and mitigations are trying to do. And the, the way I explain it to, to groups of people and to groups of workers is either the control is trying to manage how the hazard releases energy 
or that control is trying to influence um, the person. But the sad part about risk management is that risk management is all about reducing the uncertainty. And I really question sometimes about how these controls that are supposed to influence people's behaviour, how that actually reduces uncertainty. Yeah. I think that's why we get into that clutter. I think that that's really at the crux of it, is that we feel uncomfortable with that degree of uncertainty. It's really difficult to articulate. So there is a tendency to put more things in. If we have more things, surely that will keep us safer. And really, if we, if we go back to basics and, and ask people, what's the stuff that can kill you and what's the stuff that really matters? If we actually started at that point, we would be able to much better able to work out where does all of that kind of extra noise come into it and how much value are they giving us? How much surety do they give us? I remember years ago um, when I was being trained around a particular type of risk, I was basically being told at that stage that if we weren't able to implement a, um, an isolation or an engineering control, we basically had to put in eight behavioural controls to make up for the, the absence or the lack of a, um, an isolation or engineering control. Eight? Eight. What was the magic of the number eight? No idea. Still can't, still can't find any empirical evidence to support that. But what's rather, um, and I use the word ironic here, is that when I was recently looking around uh, lockout tagout and around good practice, uh, guess how many um, steps there are in lockout tagout? Eight. Eight. Well, wow. how amazing. How amazing. And in some cultures, that's a lucky number. Absolutely. Well, well, next time we should have 88 behavioural controls. Yes, not eight. We'll be much safer. So I, I sort of wonder about the fact that we, we believe we have to put all these additional barriers in place. Because the thing that concerns me, and I think lockout tagout is, is a classic example with a piece of machinery. If workers have to access a danger zone to clear a jam, then access to that danger zone should automatically de-energise the equipment without any form of process or procedure to follow. It should simply be an action. The action should be, I open the gate, the gate activates a, a digital interlock device, it de-energises the machine, there is no hazard present. The danger zone is gone. I clear the jam. I close the gate. I have to reset the control panel. And obviously, to me, that's completely fault tolerant. Versus, yep. I basically have to go and find the lockout tag out procedure, grab the lockout tag out tags, follow all eight things religiously, remembering that I'm probably only going to have to be in that danger zone for probably 30 seconds to a minute to clear that jam. And I was only in there about an hour ago to clear the jam, that I know that every time the machine jams, it's guaranteed 100% that I will complete that process, follow all those steps religiously, before 
the machine is isolated. Does that happen? No. No. Because people 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 will look for the shortest route because they they are adapting to the environment that they're working in. And they're adapting adapting to the situation that they're working in. And and it doesn't help. You know, all that all that stuff that you're doing, you know, of course those log out uh, lock out tag out will be in another part of the facility. You might have to sign it out, depending on some of the procedures we've seen. It adds no value to what they're doing on a day-to-day basis. And Much simpler. to de- There's no energy going to that piece of equipment. That's right. That and, is and, the ultimate, isn't it? And I know I'm going to get some correspondence from people about this. Yes. Okay, I know that. And and, 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 I'll, and I welcome and I value other people's thoughts on this Just, process. Hopefully they remember it's Brent Sutton. Exactly. Not Brent Robinson. Um, <laughs> but the reality is is that if something is routine, all that stuff that doesn't matter simply becomes a barrier to the worker. Yep. And that worker wants to be as efficient and as effective as he can be. Therefore, he will look to create new ways of achieving that outcome and removing that waste or that clutter by themselves. Yeah. But I think often it's the organisation has a, a poor understanding of work as done. So they might have a rich understanding of work as imagined, work as thought about, work as reported, but actually have a poor understanding of work as done. So when you're thinking about it from the point of view as work as imagined, actually adding another safety control, adding yet something else, adding yet more layers... Actually, you might be able to see a yield in that. When you look at how work is being done, how work is done, actually you start to see where the rubs form. So unless there is a conversation between work is imagined and work is done, I think that this is where we fall into that trap of let's add something else, let's add another checklist, let's add another a level, another layer, um, something else that you need to do that in, at procedure. the end of the day that doesn't actually add value. And, it, and, and what we're talking about effectively is an administrative control. And so it's the lowest form of control you can possibly have, and we're relying on it, or well, the organisation's relying on it, and it's, it's wasteful. It's, its outcome is to remove energy, yep. but its process is 100% reliant on the person. And if we agree that... The objective of risk management is to reduce uncertainty. I don't see how those things, that stuff that doesn't matter, how it can do that. And, you know, my hobby horse has always been that it's only workers that face the residual risk of a hazard. It's workers that face it. The organisation or the company, it faces the liability of not managing that hazard. But the risk in terms of harm only goes back to the worker themselves, not to the organisation. And of course, yeah. in most cases, yeah, the hazard is an object. Yeah. It doesn't have feelings. No. It's There's not, no remorse either. No, correct. It, it's, it, it doesn't create the opportunity. 
Make sense? Its design may allow the opportunity to exist, you know, the gap or all these things that can happen. But at the end of the day, the opportunity is only present when the worker is having to interface with the hazard. And how many organisations or do you go into where they rely on um, Lotto? Oh, it's uh, constant. It's, it's, it's really is quite constant. It's interesting that it's called Lotto and that's also another name for a uh, gambling activity. <sighs> yeah. Um, look, s- sadly, Ironic. The, the, the odds of, being, of having a sticky is much higher with Lotto on a machine than Lotto for gambling. Yes. And that's the sad outcome. It is. So a worker can be more successful with machine Lotto than a gambling Lotto in that way. So stuff that really matters, how does it resonate for you, Glynis? For me, it makes lots of sense. You know, I think it's about being really clear and being able to um, articulate both from the organisation's point of view but from the worker's point of view what are those critical risks and what are the critical controls? Um, I think it helps to really streamline. It helps us to think about what are those things that we need to have present in order to um, to manage the hazard, to, to ensure that work can be done safely. And then it also helps us to think about, well, what guidance do we need? How do we upskill our workers so that they can make good risk decisions when faced with dynamic risk? It shows us where we can make trade-offs. And I like to, I've been thinking about it as stuff that really matters, which is what we need to focus on. But to help us get to that point, we've got to think about the stuff that really doesn't matter as well. You know, I was giving an example of the um, induction I had to do. I, I was not any safer afterwards than I was before. I don't think I knew much more afterwards than I did before. And it's 30 minutes of your life that you're giving up to do an induction that was adding no value. And in my view, it was stuff that really didn't matter. I was going to be with somebody else. And, you know, how often do we see that in organisations where we're adding this layer that actually separates us? Instead of just saying, you know, on this site, we've got hazards of moving equipment, um, mobile equipment and large trucks coming in. That's the primary hazard. And, we, you know, we really want you to be aware of that when you're on this facility. And what's interesting is, um, you know, post-COVID-19, should that ever sort of come about, and I'm, I'm always optimistic and hopeful that it will, I mean, the no fact worries. is, you know, organisations right now are looking to actually remove waste. They're looking to improve um, efficiency. They're looking to lower costs. Yep. And during good times, do we see that that safety ends up adding layers, but during bad times we look to remove them? I, I, once again, I, I find it quite fascinating that during COVID-19, because our systems were so brittle, that most of these things that we had relied on in the past did not function, did not work. No. Have they crept back in? Victoria's a perfect example of this, and I think um, Sue... Um, did a great job of talking about contractor management. That all the security companies we use had contractor management, and they'd gone through the system and the process, and everybody had checked in, and but they didn't actually follow the rule of PDCA. They'd done the contractor management, they'd assess them. They never went to check they were doing what they said they were doing. 
Right. You know, so we'd added this, added this cost, added this thing in, and it didn't actually help us out. And the stuff that really mattered was what they were doing on the ground every day, what the workers were doing on the ground every day. And, you know, we might blame the workers off that and only follow the procedure. But you're right, Brent, the system was so brittle and the testing and the checking, was, you know, the actual real checking we should have been doing wasn't happening, wasn't even thought about happening. And we weren't applying something as simple as PDCA to the problem. Yet, sadly, if we we did a root cause analysis, we would discover that the virus couldn't read. Yes. The virus had a problem of literacy numeracy. It couldn't read. And the the virus, um, it knew what mattered, and it was getting to the next person. Right, because that's its inherent design, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, because it wants to... Super efficient. Super efficient. Super and effective. And again, I think this is you know a good example of where workers imagined was kind of quite grand and you know had kind of uh, big big ideas about how life was going to, to to eventuate, and so little was done at the at the point where work is done. Yeah. Yeah, and, and again, that kind of validates that whole idea of of, of PDCA. But and, but the loop was the communication loop was weak because there were people feeding back information. There was just nobody listening. And so it all just fell on deaf ears. And, you know, I think it's, a, a, it's again, really a poignant thing around the stuff that really matters. That's what we should focus on in these, in these situations, not the stuff that doesn't matter. Absolutely. So, so what I've been thinking about is uh, how do we define um, something that, that really matters? So if, if we say that stuff that really matters – you know, uh, with a sticky, we've defined what a sticky is. That's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Because a, a sticky is based on its consequence. Yep. Yep. That a sticky can't be something that gives you a tickle. A sticky has to be something that can kill you. So if we think about uh, these controls then, these controls that we're going to call STRM, stuff that really matters... I think the first thing we could do is that if we if we want to define when a control is an STRM, I think the first thing is it has to be very specific to preventing or minimising the consequence of the hazard. Yep. So if it can't prevent or minimise the consequence of the hazard, then it can't be a STRM. So just as Todd talks about that a sticky happens because the hazard can release energy, in this case, it can't be an STRM control unless it's specific to preventing or minimising the consequence of the hazard. So when we say preventing or minimising, what does that sort of sum up? Because um, one of the things that I see quite often is that we become so predicated on prevention that we lose sight of also response and recovery. Capacity. We're not building, you know, we're, we're about minimize. well, we're not about minimization, we're about total reduction quite often. And really it's about the capacity. If the system does fail, that you've got that capacity to fail. So I think that feeds into this, this as well. It's an important part of it. Yeah. I think that's a really good point. Can you just kind of tease that out a bit more, Brent? Well, I think the, the, from a point of view of the control that, you know, it has it has to have a, a difference about it 
there's got to be some evidence that it's there that, and it's working as designed. You know, we just talked about the COVID. We had no evidence that anything was working. And I think it's about that verification of it as well and that we're not adding waste into it simultaneously, that, you know, it's clean and it's lean and it's and, it, and we can see those three points and we can see those three things really, really effectively. And it's apparent to people. And right. I think we, we, we cover those up sometimes. So, so what we're saying is that the control that workers have to understand its intended purpose. Yep. What it's there to do. That that control um, has to be evidence based as to how it works. Yep. And to know when it's working. And the control then needs to be verified that it's working as intended. And ultimately, if we do that, it goes back to what you said, Brent, about capacity. You know, that builds the capacity of the system, but it also builds a capacity of the individual workers. Yeah, uh, that's a really important point, isn't it? That their capacity has increased due to the controls that have been put in place. You know, I think but doesn't it also say that they need to be part of developing that control at some point as well, yeah, understanding what they're doing? And certainly part of that evaluating of whether or not those controls are effective over time. Yeah. I'd like to argue that the control should be present to support successful work rather than, rather than to stop failure. Or is yeah, that too radical? That's a, that's a, it's a... It's an interesting way of looking at it. I think it leads into that notion of capacity, though. Yes. So rather, because when we think about prevention controls, we actually we keep talking about preventing an event. I think in this case, yep. what we're trying to talk about is about trying to support uh, the opportunity for learning that happens when people are having to work with these hazards every day. So how, how does a control support successful outcomes rather than preventing failure? Or it could be a combination of both. I suspect it's a combination of both. Um, however, from a kind of an organisational learning perspective, I think what we need to be focusing on is how, how do our controls support good practice? Um, what do they do to, to help people to make good decisions in dynamic risk environments? Yeah, and and I think Brent's and that feeds into what Brent was saying is that they understand why the control is there. They were not placing something on them as a being prohibitive about it. It's there to they understand why it's there. That it is about building that capacity into our systems for when they do fail. Yeah, so they're understanding its purpose. They're yep. understanding, um, you know, its intention. Um, and uh, I think, like everything else, the, the ability for that person to see when normal work starts to shift. Yeah, that's right. I, I yeah. think that's a really important one that, you know, that these, uh, I suppose, these critical controls, what people understand is um, how much capacity do they have? You know, at what point do they have limitations? 
um, and that's made really overt both to the organisation but more more in particular to, to the workers. Because the controls have really been designed to support normal work mm. and they're trying to have a bit of buffer either side. Yeah. But, but at the end of the day, um, it's, it's the worker that can see when something moves away from normal because I'm not convinced a worker can see when something is abnormal. I think we spend more time understanding what a normal state is rather than saying what's a dangerous state. And the example could be um, we, you know, we do things like drills and scenarios, but we don't run scenarios for every uh, potential outcome. So we, we do a fire drill so that people understand yep. if it happens, but we don't run a scenario for um, um, 15 ways of, of a fire happening. Yep. Or six, yeah, so we're practicing six, on the outcome. Yes, correct. Yeah. We're treating it yep. as a the drill as a response and recovery component. Yep. And I, and I doubt that many workers would understand what inherent designs are built into the workplace to um, try to prevent that event from occurring to begin with. Yeah. Because yeah, the controls aren't visible. Yeah, they're, they're, not, they're not visible. Yeah. Okay, they're just not visible to them in that way. All right, so what we've heard is that it's really important that if you've got a sticky stuff that kills you, then there must be controls that fit that criteria of stuff that really matters. And if it doesn't matter, you've really got to ask yourself, why keep it? Yeah. What's that value in keeping it? And to determine if it's stuff that really matters that it needs to be specific to preventing or minimising the consequence of the hazard causing harm, that the performance of the control must be evidence-based. We need to know why it's present and why it's working and that the performance of the control can be verified at the same time. So that's a really good example of how to extend that, that notion or that acronym, and how to push that into um, everyday work environment. Because I, I do love the stuff that's been talked about with stickies. Um, I do love the stuff that we're talking about here, about stuff that really matters. And I think it would be really good to get feedback from our listeners to explore that next component about stuff that doesn't matter. And how we can yeah, have a conversation. Because... Uh, I imagine there'd be a lot of people that would be uncomfortable in removing something. I think that will be the next big hurdle. We've got something here. We think it's making us safer, making our organisation safer. If we remove it, what happens if something happens? Well, I think we've got to test that. That's right. And, of course, uh, let's not forget a classic Todd Conklin uh, comment is that the future has always remained uncertain.
what are your final thoughts, Glynis? I think that when we look at uh, what are the things that can kill you, what is the stuff that really matters, that the vital piece in this is a dialogue with workers. If you really want to work out what's the stuff that really matters, they need to be part of that conversation. Because I think from my point of view, once we understand the stuff that really matters, there's a great opportunity to look at the stuff that doesn't matter and take out some waste and some cost within our systems and improve the clarity for all people in the system that are using the system. So, yeah, I think, I think this is going to be, you know, I think it's an exciting topic. I think it's um, where we need to move to in the safety profession. And I'm sure we'll get some interesting feedback from the community. But I think that's part of having that debate moving forward. It's great. Absolutely. And either way, no matter what we do, whether we introduce or whether we take away, we should always study and understand its effectiveness. So even if we do remove it, we should actually have that conversation with the workers. Did it make a difference? Has it introduced anything different from what we identified to begin with? We've got to keep going back and we've got to validate those very assumptions that we put in place to begin with. Because the reality is a lot of risk management is based on assumptions. And you can't identify every potential scenario that can unfold. So go back, good old PDCA, or uh, remember we we talked a a few episodes ago about plan, do, check, act. Think about it from the point of view of plan, do, study, and action. So the study component is to understand why it works and how it works, getting a much deeper meaning of it, and then acting on that. And once again, if it's not working... Improve it or remove it. It's a binary choice. Thank you listeners for being part of this podcast. We'd love to hear your learnings from today or other topics you would like us to support you on. Go to www.podcastlearnings.com and Be part of the community practice of learning teams at www.learningteamscommunity.com. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the host and its guest and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the company. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are only examples. They should not be utilized in the real world as the only solution available as they are based only on very limited and dated open source information. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the company. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored in a retrieval system, or transmitted in any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic, recording, or otherwise, without prior written permission of the creator of the podcast, Jay Allen.